Hello, my name is Randy Rice, and I would like to welcome you to this webinar. Uh, today we're going to talk about principles before practice, uh, how, to transform, how to transform your testing practices with some of the principles that we find uh, in the ISTQB uh, Foundation and Advanced uh, Syllabus and, and Courses and such. Uh, just as a point of introduction, uh, I am on the board of directors of the ASTQB here in the U.S. Uh, I hold the uh, all three advanced level certifications, so I'm an advanced level tester uh, full. Uh, sometimes I say full because I've just eaten dinner or something, but I'm a fully certified uh, advanced. And uh, I guess the other notable thing, uh, I'm co-authored with Bill Perry of a couple of books, Surviving the Top 10 Challenges of Software Testing, as well as testing dirty system. And I've been doing this for a long, long time, uh, over 35 years. So uh, with that uh, brief introduction, let's get started here. Uh, a few, well, actually many years ago, not a few, time flies when you're having fun, I guess, but um, I recall uh, someone telling me that if they wanted to teach me how to wash dishes, uh, they could go through and show me how to wash every conceivable type of dish, all the way from uh, plastic dishes to plastic cups and crystal and uh, coffee mugs and all of this. And each type of dish would have some variation to it. You know, there are some pots and pans that you have to be very careful how you clean. Uh, but they said, you know, instead of teaching all the conceivable types of items that you, you could possibly wash in the kitchen, if they could teach me the principles behind what I was doing, uh, then I wouldn't have to worry about worrying about uh, how to make a, adaption to ad adaptation to each of the items I'd be uh, washing. So, you know, there's some basic principles like, you know, you want to get all the big food stuff off of there first so you don't get your dishwater dirty. Um, and another thing is you want to clean the messier things last. So once again, you don't get the dishwater dirty. Uh, make sure the water's hot enough, but not too hot or else you'll burn yourself. And be really careful when you stick your hands into the sudsy water because you could get poked with a sharp knife. Uh, and those are just off the top of my head, a, a few of the biggies. If we think about testing, uh, we also have some principles that you can fall back on. Like it's good to take some sample tests early in your in the testing effort to kind of find out where the big problem areas might be. And when we first start testing something, you don't want to do the most complex things first. Do the simple things first to get your bearings. You're getting used to the system, to each other, and, and so forth. Uh, also, you want strong tests for sure, you know, to make sure that we find the defects. But if you make every test strong and intense, then you're probably not going to have time to finish the test. Also, uh, I think we've learned that early testing is good. However, if you test too soon, uh, you may be actually testing uh, too early because things aren't ready yet for testing. And at that point, all you're doing is kind of like uh, staying busy. So uh, some other questions that I, that I hear testers ask a lot uh, in the courses that I teach and as I consult is, well, how do we know which tools to use? And it's not just the brands of the tools, but it's how do we know what types of tools or which types of techniques are best for a project? And how do we adjust the tools and techniques? 
Now, for those of you who are foundation level certified and uh, higher, you'll know that uh, these are some of the learning objectives that we have uh, in in the courses and in, in the syllabus. Uh, because the idea here is not only do you learn about these things, but you learn when to make adaption and uh, adaptation to certain situations. Um, however, this is where people tend to struggle. And one of the things that I've observed uh, over the years is that we have this expectation that uh, we can ourselves go with, uh, you know, to the table with a little knowledge or maybe t take a team uh of maybe recent college grads or something uh, with little or no knowledge, and within a week transform these people into great testers. And we know it doesn't work that way, okay? Uh, <laughs> that's a pretty unrealistic expectation is to go from no knowledge to even any level of mastery. Uh, one of the things that the critics of certification uh, like to talk about quite a bit is that uh, you know th there's no practical application uh, proven in certification? Well, you know, I would say uh, even extend that out to all kinds of things. Uh, the lowest level I can think of is a driver's license, and uh, yeah, you take a driver's test, you sit with a driver uh, in instructor uh, or you a driving inspector, I guess uh, that we have here where I live. And they will have you do some basic things like merge into traffic and park and, and those kind of things. But yet, have you noticed how many bad drivers are on the road? <laughs> you know, if you're like I am, you're wondering where in the world did these people get their licenses? And just because you have a driver's license doesn't make you a great driver, right? Well, let's think about it on the extreme end of the scale. Uh, let's think about the medical profession. Okay, the medical profession, uh, you've got to get your undergrad degree, you've got to get your postgrad degrees out of the way, and then you got to go, you have to go through uh, two or three years of residency where you're under the direction of uh, a team of typically other doctors and you're actually doing procedures and things. Um, but you know what? At the end of the day, when you get your medical degree and you're able to hang your shingle out, as they say, uh, there are still some really, really good doctors and some really, really bad doctors, okay? Uh, competency does not come through even actual practice under the hands of a skilled master. It's still up to you to be able to show these things. Now, the realistic view of what we're talking about here, going from no knowledge to mastery, is you're kind of going step by step. And I think you can probably relate to this that it, you'll find in your own personal career, uh, the longer you do things, the better you get, and you kind of feel like you reach these levels uh, of competency. However, you may experience a point where you take this thing, uh, you might think of it as the dip, where uh, you, you're good at something, but then you kind of have a setback. Uh, and you you realize that, hey, the, the, the things I was I, things I was doing before, they're, they're not working now. And so I have to relearn some things or learn some new things. And I may go even through cycles of this. Uh, and then eventually, though, we'll reach this point, hopefully, that we feel like uh, we've achieved some mastery. Another reason why I'm speaking on this is because uh, a few months ago, I was sitting with one of my test analysts, uh, and we were designing some tests on, uh, on a very complex system. 
And after taking about two or three stabs at this um, test design, you know, I, I would do some things and we would whiteboard some things and brainstorm some stuff. And I'd say, no, that's not going to work. And he'd say, why not? And I'd say, well, because of this and this and this. And then we'd try a couple of other things. I said, no, nah, nah, I don't like this. He goes, why wouldn't that work? And I said, it, it won't scale. And so it made me realize that testing is a very nuanced kind of thing. That, you know, it's one thing to, to sit in a classroom and to learn boundary value analysis, let's say, for example. But it's another thing to actually apply that on a project where you may have hundreds of boundaries. Uh, you may have certain techniques that apply, and you can even apply each technique differently in a bunch of different situations. So what I'm saying here is one of the big seven principles, which I think we, we probably all recognize anyway, is that testing is context-driven. It really does depend on your situation. Now, these big seven, I'm going to go back and review, but that's not the, um, the focus of of today's webinar. Uh, I'll mention those, but I'm going to introduce a few more to you as well. Uh, so here's the big challenge, at least in my mind, uh, as a teacher uh, of this and as a consultant, uh, and especially in the ISTQB certification program, we have a set of learning objectives. And, you know, you can learn those in any number of ways. You may want to do self-study or you may want to go to a class or something. So I'm up there teaching, let's say, and there are these slides and the slides reinforce what's in the learning objectives and so forth. And we also have some exercises to reinforce uh, the, the K3 and K4s, which I'll talk about here in just a minute. And poor lady down here, you're, she's just trying to keep all this stuff in her head for three days so she can take the test. And then, uh, and pass the test. And even then, even further, hopefully, she can apply this on her job. Okay, that, that's what her management is hoping that she can do with this. So we have all the things. We have the, the instruction, we have the visual aids, we have the exercises. Um, and then we have to kind of retain that knowledge some way. And experience in the classroom is one way to do it, but it's, it's insufficient. Uh, to really last you the long scale, long time. But but it, it gets even worse than this because you not only have one person that is trying to retain this knowledge, but we have a whole classroom full of people. Uh, and you're building your test teams and you have all different kinds of people that may see different things in different ways. And not only that, but because of the passage of time, uh, your needs are going to change. Your applications are going to change. The organization will change. And so it's, it's not just a really smooth road. It's not where, you know, I can even go up there and teach you how to wash the dishes, so to speak. Um, but you have to learn yourself. What is it that allows me to adapt to different situations and to apply that into knowledge and, and, and something that we can tangibly see on projects? Now, for those of you, once again, who have gone through um, any level of certification, this will look familiar to you. These are the lowest four levels of Bloom's taxonomy for learning, and it goes from K1, where you're remembering things. This is the easiest thing, actually. Uh, you know, like, what is a defect? What is a failure? That kind of thing. 
But then a K2 level is to understand the principles, the theory, the concepts behind things so that you're able to explain and you're able to understand things like why is a um, failure not necessarily a defect. And then at level three, you get into the application level where you're able to do the things. These are the practices that I'm talking about here that you can actually do what is taught at the concept at the conceptual or the factual basis. And then K4 is the highest where you're able to assimilate things and analyze things and you're able to make a reasoned judgment, for example, of why one level of coverage is stronger or weaker than another type of coverage. Now, to be able to do that, though, you have to understand the concepts. You have to understand what's going on at K2. Now, the, the seven general principles that we have in, in the certification, uh, these are in the foundation level. Uh, they're one of the very first things that you learn in the classes. Uh, things like testing shows the presence of defects, but doesn't show the absence of defects. So that's why we can only speak to the things that we've seen. Also, another one would be exhaustive testing is impossible. You know, isn't it great that we have this one to fall back on? Because we do have people that expect that testers can find all the defects. And we know that there's just too many things to test that we just simply can't do that. Uh, early testing is good. Defects tend to cluster. Uh, the pesticide paradox is that your tests grow weaker over time um, simply because you the more you perform a test, the, the, the more defects you find. And then eventually you found just about all the defects that that test can find. It's like a antibiotic or a pesticide. They grow, they grow weaker because the things we're dealing with um, tend to be eradicated and the survivors uh, in the real world breed stronger offspring. Now, in the defect world, they don't breed, thankfully. But we, we start finding that different classes of defects are found with different methods. Uh, we mentioned one about context dependency of testing, and there's also this absence of errors fallacy, which um, I always thought was a, a little unusual in the mix there, but it, it is true uh, that even if you did have a defect-free product, if it was unusable, it doesn't really do you much good. So uh, those are the, the big seven, as I call them, from the um, foundation level syllabus. But there's a lot of other principles that are implied in the uh, certification. Uh, one that I mentioned uh, a couple of slides back there was that not every failure is a defect. You may expect to see something and see something differently, and you would record that as a failure, but maybe it turns out you're dealing with the wrong version of something in the test, or maybe uh, the test data had uh, some kind of problem with it or something. Another principle is that not every test can or should be automated. You know, there are some things that you simply want to do manually, like acceptance testing and, and things like that. Also, test automation doesn't replace the need for manual testing. It doesn't replace people necessarily. It many times shifts the roles, um, and it doesn't matter how good your test is if you're testing the wrong version. That's why we have that little section on configuration management tucked in to the test management uh, section there of the training. Now, you won't find these principles on this slide in the syllabus. Uh, you won't find these stated per se the way that I have. These are implied from the concepts 
that we're that we teach in the certification. But you very well could have uh, questions around these. Now, I just I got to make a correction of what I just said. You will find the first one. Not every failure is a defect. You will find that one stated pretty expl uh, explicitly there. Um, but what we're really talking about here is understanding the principles so that we can take those principles and answer a question correctly. But even a bigger reason than that, so that we can apply the, the ideas uh, on an actual project and that we'll know how to do the things we need to do in testing uh, because we've learned how to adapt them to our own situations. Now, I call this climbing K2. Uh, we have the, the picture of K2, the mountain. Uh, but what we're talking about is how do you climb this level of knowledge? Because this is the thing that people normally really dislike. It's very conceptual. It's very theoretical and typically hands-off. Okay, it's, it's, it's the stuff that you kind of have to really get your mind into. You have to get deeper understanding. And it usually takes longer to build the concepts, to build the theory, uh, be, because you have to think about it. And it, it takes a, some, some questioning. Now, what I hear often from the students <laughs> is, well, just show us how to use the tool. Just show us how to do the technique. And, you know, I, it, some people actually get pretty impatient and frustrated uh, in the process because a lot of things typically have to unfold, okay? You have to kind of learn some basic principles to even know what the tool is for, okay? Uh, so I, if I start just showing you how to use the tool, uh, you'll, you'll wind up at a place a little bit further down the road saying, oh, that's great, but why did I do that? Okay, now management, they will, when they're out shopping for a course for their students and for their team, They'll say, give us a course that has a lot of hands-on, a, a lot of practical application. Don't spend a lot of time on the theory, on the concepts. Okay, I get that too because you want something that you can take away, right? Well, here's the problem. Is that it doesn't take too long before you realize, like in a tool situation, that, okay, we learned how to use the tool, but how do you apply it to our stuff? You know, we just learned on a case study. That's my point exactly. If, if, you, if you learn what's behind the reasoning of why we do certain things in test automation, why we build frameworks and such, then you'll understand that, yeah, you can't just rely on one case study example. Another thing I'll hear is, like from management, that, hey, our, our team passed the exam, but we're still not getting it on projects. We're still having trouble implementing the techniques. Yeah, uh, because when you turn the class into a, an exam cram session, uh, you're, you're not focusing on the techniques. You're, you're focusing on how to answer a question. And that doesn't really serve you any purpose going forward onto your projects. I'll give you another example about this. I, I'm, they call me the, the trainer of a million analogies. <laughs> well, uh, I'm also, uh, I wouldn't call myself a musician. I like to play around. Uh, I, I like to hang around. Uh, musicians. And um, so I, I do play at the guitar. I, I took three years of classical guitar in college. And my uh, and I've enjoyed playing since then, too, and picking up different styles. Uh, but my teacher was a really unusual teacher. 
um, he picked me to be his guinea pig of showing that you can teach someone to play an instrument just by having them mimic what someone else is doing. So he used what's called the Suzuki method with me. And in fact, if you go out to YouTube, you'll find these little, um, I think they're Korean children doing a, a classical guitar quintet. And you know they didn't learn it from reading music. They, they learned by the Suzuki method. And so, in fact, there's tons of YouTube videos out there that if you want to learn how to play a specific song, they will teach you, put this finger here, put this finger here, and you can play songs. And if you have the dedication, and I learned several classical pieces and played in recitals and things strictly from learning, watching my teacher and, you know, practicing. But here's the problem. You're only able to play certain songs and you can't improvise. So if you really want to get good, the, the really good professional musicians, even some of the big rock stars, they know how to read music. They know the scales. In fact, blues, heavy metal, all that are all based on scales and different types of tunings. And uh, that's why that's what you see here on on the picture uh, are the, the various fretboard positions where once you learn where someone is in terms of a key, then you can play the different scales and you can sound awesome. You know, you can play some pretty cool uh, solos, even without any kind of music. But you only get that way by learning the theory and the scales. That's especially true in blues and heavy metal. Now, uh, but you weren't here to learn, learn blues and heavy metal, were you? Let's look at a couple of examples from the foundation level syllabus. Uh, and these are also kind of built upon uh, for the advanced level as well. But I want to talk about this first one that people kind of get hung up on sometimes, and that is state transition testing. Now, th the reason that a lot of people have problems with it, I believe, is that uh, there was a day when we had a lot of state transition models in software development. And what these models would represent are the, the various states of operation or behavior of a system. Now, the, 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 the golden rule here is that you're able to identify a specific and a, a finite number of states of operation or behavior. Uh, this is one of those things where there's nothing else in the model that we have to worry about in terms of states. We, we can identify them all. And when we are able to identify all the states, then we can understand how to go from one state to the other. Those are the transitions. And so it came about a long time ago, in the early 80s, probably. Um, I remember reading this from one of Boris Beiser's books, I think his first one, actually, um, about state transition testing. And what you're looking for is uh, the, the, are the situations where the transitions are incorrect where uh, the model says you should go from state one to state two, but you're not able to. Uh, one of the most basic examples of this is normal operation and uh, when you encounter an error. So think about this, like on a Windows-based system, you encounter an error and you have a big error box now in the middle of your screen. You can't do the same things when the, the big error box is in the middle of your screen than you can as you can in normal operation. 
So a couple of things we can look to see when the state behavior is incorrect and when the model also is incorrect. Now you can do this with interactive and transactional kind of applications like web applications and stuff, but you can also see this with batch applications as well because there's a lot of moving parts within the big black box of the batch application that we don't see that are still transitions of state. Now here's the thing, when you learn this in the class, you kind of get the impression, okay, here's another tool in my box and I can use it all the time. Well, you really can't use it all the time. It's not on the front line of testing, but if you can apply it, you can find some very interesting defects. Now I'm gonna show you an example. Oh, I have a question. Teacher, why do we need to know this? Oh, very good, Johnny. I'm glad you asked. Um, let's say that we're testing an application that has an undo function with it. Okay, so let's just say we're gonna identify three states. Now, most of you don't get a model like this, I would suspect, because once again, uh, we do well to get even requirements documented, much less a state transition model. But let's say someone likes state transition diagrams and they drew this. So we have the edit state, like let's imagine we're doing something in Microsoft Word, okay? Um, and so we have this edit state where we're here creating our document and we do some things and we say, oh man, I don't wanna add that table, I wanna undo it. So we go to the undo state and then that pops us right back to the edit state. Okay, so we have transition one and transition two. Now, we have this weird thing here in the model that shows from the undo state, we can go to the save state. Now, is this possible? Uh, some people would say no, because you can't hit save while you're in the undo state. Well, what if autosave kicks in? Hmm, that's interesting. Maybe we should have an autosave state. Okay, so maybe there's a problem with, this, with the model. But anyway, uh, let's tuck that in one corner of our mind. Uh, now we can also go from the edit state, obviously, directly to the save state, and then back to the edit state when the save is done. But now let's think about something. Can we undo a save? Hmm, that's kind of interesting. So if we, if we kind of look at all of this, we'll certainly want to test the edit functions, the undo functions, and the save functions. But the real key here is, do we want to try to test the transitions? Like the edit, the undo, then the save. Is that really what, we're, what that transition three is showing? Or the edit, the save, and then the undo, which is invalid according to the model, but perhaps the application can do it and so forth. Um, we have other things down here that I've put like an undo action without any edits and all of these things we see down here, these are at the practice level. To be able to know if we can do these or not is really what we're trying to get to in our competence. Now, what you've seen here is a very simple state transition model. What would you do if you got one of these? Okay, and, <laughs> you know, I don't even know if I would tackle this one or not. But let's say that you were dealing with a medical device or something that someone really liked state transition diagrams or it was part of your um, toolkit for software development or something. Um, well, you would have something here that you could really sink your teeth into. <laughs> 
as I'm saying, I wouldn't get all that excited about testing this, but hey, this is how the software is modeled to behave. So you'd have a big job on your hands. Let's take a second example, one that probably we all use, and that would be risk-based testing. Now, the, the, the key principle of risk-based testing, and of course it's been around for a long, long time, but the idea here is that you know you can't test everything. Uh, and so even when you can't test the basic layer of functionality or when you need to prioritize your testing to meet delivery schedules would be probably when you'd want to use this. Uh, another way to, to see this is the higher the risk of something, the more intense the test should be. So it really helps you to focus on important areas and maybe give lesser attention to lesser important areas. Uh, and also there's a, this other angle of risk that says that as we're testing that we're going to identify perhaps new risk or we can trace to identified risk and see if they've been mitigated as we, as we test. Maybe that's one of our jobs uh, on our project is for the testers to, uh, to track the risk to see how they're looking. So you can use this in just about any application as long as you're able to really uh, understand and measure, identify the risk, okay? Um, but here's the, the trick about risk-based testing is that uh, some people rely on it probably too much because it is possible to miss risk and therefore miss some defects. Because keep in mind, risk is not a, a certainty, okay? It's just a possibility. And your knowledge, my knowledge, is limited as you might say it, uh, we don't know what we don't know. And there'll be some things in the risk-based approach that will not get tested, uh, simply because, uh, once again, what we're doing here is we're packing a box or a suitcase you might want to think about. Once again, another one of Randy's analogies. But this is an exercise of what are we going to put in the box, what are we going to leave out of the box? And the, the trouble is some of the things we choose to leave out of the box may become pretty important to us. And so that there, are, there are certain situations like uh, safety critical, for example, uh, when everything is a high risk. You know, how do you prioritize uh, within that kind of thing? And so here's little Johnny again uh, asking, isn't all testing risk-based? Um, in a way, it probably is. But also, in a way, risk-based testing can kind of present us with some unique challenges. Like, think about this, okay? We have this whole universe of test cases. Uh, if I could draw millions of them here, I would. But we have this big number of cases, let's say, and we're going to segment them and prioritize. We're going to measure the risk and put some categories here, like uh, the high-risk cases, uh, one, two, six, seven, so forth up here, the moderate-risk cases down here, and the low-risk cases, uh, 12, 14, and case N. And we're saying, oh, okay, great, we have them all prioritized. We're going to test the top tier first, then the gold ones, then the blue ones. And that's all fine and good until we test a transaction that involves case 7, I'm sorry, case 1, then 7, then 11, then 12, then 8. So what we've done here now is we've spanned all three levels of risk. And how do we prioritize at the, at the test case level when we do this? Well, the answer is we don't. The answer is, is that we 
take this up a level and we prioritize based on the transaction. And unless you understand that you have to adjust the level of risk, now you're not going to be able to apply this technique the right way. So we can apply this at the product level, at the project level. Oh, by the way, I, uh, under the product risk, you'll see here that we can have these attribute levels of risk, like usability and performance and, and those kind of things as well. So there's various angles we can take on this. But what about the risks that never get resolved, the residual ones, or when everything is a high risk, or maybe when the risks aren't all that apparent to us, or the project is changing all the time. Um, now, some people will use this as an excuse for reduced testing. And uh, they'll say, well, you know, we're just going to focus on the high risk. Well, then the question becomes, well, how are you identifying this? Or what about when the risks are, are difficult to mitigate? and track. Uh, maybe people raise the risk, but they're not very good at actually dealing uh, with those risks. Now, we, we had a question uh, come up in the webinar, uh, or come up in the, in the, in the question uh, window here, about are there any other ways to deal with this situation of when you know you can't test everything? And my answer to that is yes, there are like in the safety critical, when everything is a high risk, uh, you want to start thinking about test optimization. Now, in test optimization, uh, you have trade-offs, okay? You're still not testing everything, but what you are doing is you're developing an intelligent subset. Now, there are some ways to do test optimization. Pairwise and orthogonal arrays are kind of like random ways to do it. And when I say random, you're just dealing with random pairings of things. In my experience, one of the best techniques I've used for this is cause-effect graphing. And in cause-effect graphing, it's kind of related to decision tables. It, you're, you're testing related conditions, and you're eliminating the redundant ones or the illogical ones. Now, you're still not testing everything, though, right? You're, you're taking some trade-offs here. The, uh, the thing that you have to do to get to that world, though, is you have to learn how to combine test conditions. And that's where the, the, the tough learning comes in. But you're not just saying, here's test case one, and it consists of test condition one. You have to have about three or four, maybe even up to seven or so, conditions per test case. And the other gotcha on this is if you don't perform the test case exactly how documented, the whole scheme kind of falls apart because it's like a house of cards. Okay, well, that was a great question that came in uh, during the webinar. Now, here's a tip that I can kind of get you onto to help identify your practices. What, what I do is I look at the area that I have to deal with, like test automation or test design or test evaluation, and come up with the key principles that I, I can understand, I always rely on. Like with automation, you can't automate everything, it doesn't replace people, and you get your return based on repetition. Now that repetition one is a big one, because if someone wants me to test something, and they also want me to automate it, I'm gonna say, okay, how many times are we gonna do this test? Oh, only once? Well, we might want to rethink automation. 
Okay, because if we're only going to do this test one time, we're not going to get the payback from automation probably. So you might want to come up with your own set of practices based upon the principles that, uh, that you're aware of. Now, uh, the, the other part of this uh, webinar, the, the final part, is to really give you some things to hang your hat on uh, in terms of going from principles to practices. The, the thing I really have to reinforce is that this is not an easy thing to do. I struggle with it myself all, all the time. It's not easy, it's not automatic, and it's not instant. Uh, that's why training a three-day class or a four-day class or even a five-day, even a 20-day class is not going to convey all of this into your practice. Uh, and if anything else, this is a mental process. Uh, we, we have to understand how we learn. We have to understand how we apply things to our projects. Uh, there's a lot of things here that are the result of experience and trying things and risking things. Uh, this is not something, once again, that gets delivered in the classroom. In fact, even mentoring and coaching can only help you by seeing blind spots. You know, you talk to someone who's a sports coach, for example, a golf uh, pro or tennis pro or something. And yeah, you know, they can take your hand and they can grip the, the club or the racket uh, for you, but show you the first time, but you've got to learn the right feel. You've got to learn what's really right for you. So what really happens here is the instructor in the classroom says, okay, now here's how you do this technique. Meanwhile, you've got Harry on the front row saying, okay, I get it, but I'm not so sure if that's going to work around here. I think I like my way better. But then Harry's also thinking, however, I know that some of the things we're doing, they're, they're not working. I need to improve my game, I think. <laughs> Harry is the cynic in each of us, okay? And you know what? That's fine. Uh, as a teacher, I, I don't go in um, telling people that everything I know is going to work for them. In fact, I encourage people to do what you think works best for you. I'm here to show you a toolkit. Each of us know internally how we work best. And so as the external coaching consultant, I can sit back and give you advice, and I know you're going to take about half of it. There's a, a great book, actually it's a series of books, called The Inner Game Of. There's The Inner Game of Tennis was where it started, but he's also written The Inner Game of Golf, and he's now he's written The Inner Game of Work. Uh, Timothy Galway is the, the author of this, and I really, you know, I, I'm reading the book right now and loving it, and it explains a lot of things about why we don't change, and that is what we're talking about here is change. Because, see, the problem is we fail and we give up. But it's by failing over a period of time that we get better. Now, I'm sure you've probably seen this competence quadrant thing where you're dealing with a couple of things. One is competence and the other is consciousness. <laughs> now, I know you work with people that you probably think are unconscious, but what we're talking about here is the idea that we're incompetent at something, but we don't know it. Okay, that's where it all begins. Uh, this is the person that 
you know, you have to take by the shoulders and shake them and say, no, 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 you don't do it this way. You, uh, you have to do it this way. And maybe before long, they'll wake up to say, oh, I'm really not all that good at this after all. You know, quadrant one, these are the people that try out for the American Idol show. And, you know, you just cringe because all their friends have told them for all this time that they're a really great singer. But then they get before the judges and the judges have to give them the bad news, you know, that they're not. Well, as a consultant and trainer, sometimes this is what I do with people. I, I have to point out, no, you, no, this is not working. You got to you, you got to get better at this or do this. So it kind of gets you now into quadrant two of where we're not competent and we know it. <laughs> OK, we're bad and we know it. And, and, and this is something now we can work with. Um, Quadrant three is where we get better and we know we're getting better and we may be even getting a little, you know, a little cocky at it. You know, we, we may think we're, we're pretty good at it and then something happens and we fail and then we get all discouraged. But eventually what you want to be is you want to be really good and not have to think about it. And that's where people get good at sports. It's where they get good at music. It's where we can get good at testing. How, have you ever had the situation where you found a bug and someone said, how in the world did you know to look there to find the bug? And you probably said, I don't know. I just had a hunch. That's quadrant four. Now, uh, Will Taylor has a play on this. That's not the quadrants, but he, it's kind of growing circles where you go from this naive stage, which is the unconscious incompetence through discovery and learning and practice until something becomes second nature, almost like intuition. Now in the middle here, you see this thing of reflective competence. You're always going back to asking why. Why did I do that? Or why didn't I do this? And you can self-study, you can peer review, you're always learning, okay? This is the thing, that the people that really get good are always learning. Now. I'm going to give you a couple of specific points of application here at the end. One is taking exams. Uh, I always, you know, get these questions about how do I, you know, I'm not good at taking exams. How do I get better? Well, first of all, I, I advise people don't overthink the questions. Don't over don't overanalyze things. Now, read the question carefully and think it through, but don't deviate and go back and forth on the answer. You know, you don't change it from A to B or B to C or, you know, all over the place. Just think it through and answer it to the best of your, your knowledge, but read it carefully. The second thing I would say is do not rely on practice exams. Uh, we have one on the ASTQB website for foundation, which is fine. But when you go out to the web and you find these practice exams, they may have been written by someone in Australia or India or the UK, and they're not like our exams in the US. Uh, instead of what you want to do, instead of learning how to answer a question, ask, am I able to demonstrate the learning objectives? See, when you can do that, then you've demonstrated that you understand the concept. Now, the great news here is that all the learning objectives are identified in the syllabus, and the people who write the questions for the U.S. Uh, exams, they go back to the learning objectives. They go back to the syllabus to write the questions. So you know that you're on the same page. There's a book called Choke 
which um, I found helpful to recommend to some people that if you find yourself uh, getting flustered when you're taking an exam, um, I, I get kind of stage fright sometimes if I play an instrument uh, in front of a group. But I, I don't get stage fright when I speak. And I, it's just simply because that I don't think about it. <laughs> I know some people say that confirms that you don't think about what you're talking about. Uh, well, sometimes that's true, um, especially after you've taught a course a, a few hundred times. But you get to the point where you can do something almost automatically. Now, I also want to talk about this when it comes to implementing practices. Okay. Now, here's the thing. Uh, so your team has learned uh, the foundation level or the advanced level concepts. And now you're out wanting to uh, implement this into your projects. And that's great. That's exactly, you know, what you should want to do. Uh, I'm a big believer in pilot projects. Uh, to me, the big initiatives often fail because there's a lot of risk attached to that. You know, we're going to implement this for 100 people, let's say. No, I suggest going to the small scale first. And I do this thing called the planned organic approach. Uh, it's kind of like planting a garden. You know, you know where the areas of shade are. You know where the areas of the soil are. You don't just put every plant in every place. You, you have a plan, but you're growing. Okay, you're doing this in kind of a natural way. Now, the, the, the alternative to this is the picture that just came up is where everything is organic. Everything is laying around in pieces all over the place and no one knows, knows what's going on. You don't want that to happen. But you want to have a planned way to, to grow into things. You also need to have senior management support, which is critical for funding, for resources, they need to give you their blessing to do things. You don't want to just all of a sudden change all of your testing processes. You, you have to have management uh, buy-in and direction for that. But it's okay to do things in a small way and let other people see your success and then even let them copy it. Uh, that's what you want. You, you want to do some really cool things in the small world and things that are so cool that people say, hey, we want to do that in, in our team as well. Now, I'm going to leave you uh, here with one other thought. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, in his book Outliers, uh, makes an interesting point here uh, about the role of experience. About He calls it the 10,000-hour rule, where basically he says it takes about 10,000 hours of doing something to become an expert in that thing. And I can tell you that that's about the way it plays out. I don't know exactly how you figure this number, number of hours. But I can tell you that, uh, you know, after you do something for, for so many times, for such a, for a length of time, you just do it on autopilot and you get good at it. And so that's kind of the, the place it takes to be. Uh, I think that's why people kind of go on, you know, five years experience kind of thing for testing. And now, now, of course, you know, you may have 10,000 hours of experience in doing one thing. And so that's the only thing you can do. Okay. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I, I do think there's something to that. He, he gives examples in the book about how many, um, how many gigs the Beatles played in Germany, you know, before they ever became famous uh, in the UK or the United States, which I think is kind of an interesting story as well. So um, 
I want to thank you for attending this session. Uh, I, I hope it's been helpful to you in learning how to kind of make the transition from some of the uh, the theoretical things and the, and the classroom things and to some of the practical things that you need to be able to do uh, to show yourself to be a, a truly competent tester. And uh, with that, I, I leave you today and uh, I thank you for being a part of this webinar and hope that you uh, participate and show up for one of the next ones that we do at the ASTQB. Thank you very much.